Those are enough announcements. Let me just pray again and get us focused here. God, would you meet us as we open up your words in Scripture and seek to understand from kind of a bird's eye view what it is that you're doing in this world, the extent to which you are in fact here, and how we might find our place in the midst of your story. Would you guide us, Lord, in this process? Open our hearts and our minds and everything about who we are. In Christ's name, amen. So this past summer, we had a wonderful experience uh, hiking in the Sierras, and it was in August, early August, and we were in a, a place near Cherry Lake. Uh, we went out about 11, 12 miles and spent a couple of nights seemingly in the middle of nowhere, didn't see anybody for days, wonderful experience. Um, and we were in a kind of an area where every direction, what you would see would be granite. And, and you would see these valleys and these ravines, and they would run off to the horizon, and you couldn't really see where they ended up. And you're in hiking mode, and you're, you're experiencing new places. And I kept thinking to myself, I wish I could follow that ravine to the end and see where it goes. How does it connect to the desert that I know is on the other side of this mountain range? Or how does it connect on the, the western side to the trees? And, and where does it kind of go out into the valley? How do all these different facets of the rock connect to one another? So we stood there kind of in our smallness and, and, and looked at all this and, and marveled at it. Well, about a month and a half later, I'm flying from Minneapolis. And I don't really look out the window that much when I'm flying. I'm doing a lot of work. The best time to get work is on the plane, right? And so I'm doing a lot of work, and just for some reason, I, I popped my, I, I looked my head out the window, and there below me is Cherry Lake. And it's, it's very distinctive, it has an island on one side, and so I knew exactly what it was, and I, and, and, and I looked, and I started to, to follow it, and I could see uh, where we hiked, and I could see the ridge that we hiked along, and, and, the, and the lake where we ended up, and those ravines that I had wondered about, those huge gorges, those granite valleys, I could see from the airplane where they went off into the horizon and how they connected to the desert. And it was glorious to be able to connect all those pieces, to be uh, at one stage right on the ground with it, and then another stage up in the airplane looking and connecting it all together. And the reason I'm telling you that story is because it's a kind of an allegory or a metaphor for how we often understand this book, God's Word. Uh, a lot of us have spent time in this, on the ground, looking at the various stories in this book, uh, but we don't know how they connect to each other. We don't know what the overarching story is. We don't know how you get from the ravine to the desert and how it all connects together and what the contours are. And this series that we're starting today is aimed at helping us make all those connections to, to get sort of the airplane view of the story of God, so that when we are looking at the smaller segments in Scripture, we can fit them into the overarching picture. That's the goal of what we're going to do over the next few weeks. And of course, in the midst of that, we're going to see the glory of God's story, and we're going to see how our story is to be connected into that story, and how our lives begin to make sense as we see it in the light of God's overarching story in the world. So that's the goal. That's what we're going to be trying to do over these next weeks. And the booklet that you have, I hope uh, if you're a note taker type, you'll bring it each week and you'll be able to collect all those notes and then 
you know, from here forward, you'll have that to reference so that when you're studying particular parts of the Bible, you can look and see how does this fit into the big picture. Now, uh, my goal is that you'll be confident about Scripture at the end of this and that you will be uh, able to fit all those pieces together. But we've got to start somewhere. So we're going to start this morning in Genesis 2, invite you to open up to Genesis 2. And this first uh, session is going to be on creation. Genesis 2, chapter 4. And what we're going to do, uh, if, you have, if, you don't, excuse me, uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, raise your hand. We would love to give one to you. You can take this Bible home with you. Um, if you need one, just raise your hand. We'll pass it to you. And I believe it's on, all the way on page 2 that we're going to be in, in that Bible. Uh, Genesis 2, starting in verse 4. Love for you to be able to follow along. Um, much more important than what I have to say is what this book has to say. Now, uh, a little background as we get into Genesis 2 here. We've, we've, Genesis 1 paints the broad stroke picture of the creation of the world. And if you want an easy way to, to remember how that goes, just think of forming and filling. And so there's, there's six days of God's creation. And in the first three, he's forming the world. So there's, there's light let there be light is the first day. And then on the second day, he creates the sky and the waters and separates the two. And then on the third day, the land and then the plants. And so the form is there. And then in the subsequent three days, those, those different forms are filled. So on the fourth day, uh, you have the lights placed in the sky. So light was created on the first one. Now God places the lights in the sky, uh, the stars and the sun and the moon. And on the fifth day, uh, he fills the, the sky and the water. So the, the, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea are created. And then on the sixth day, he fills the land that has the plants already with the animals and the human beings. And then on the seventh day, after declaring it very good, he rests. And that brings us to chapter 2. A lot of people uh, have a hard time with chapter 2 because they wonder why it seems like a retelling of the whole creation story. And by the way, uh, as I thought through this, I was going to pause and take some time to address what I know are some sticky issues with respect to the creation story, whether that be evolution or the age of the earth. And I, I had planned out to kind of spend some time addressing those, but I don't think we have time to do that, and I don't have time to do it justice and I think if I did, what happens so often when we get on those rabbit trails is we lose sight of the big picture. And what I really want to focus on in this series is that big picture. So I'll just give you this deal. If that's a question for you, if you've got some burning questions, then I'm happy to afterwards talk with you as long as you want and wrestle through those. But right now, let's stay on the big picture. What is the Bible actually saying and how does it uh, paint a picture of God's story? Now, in chapter 2, it feels like a retelling of the Genesis 1, but what we really have, the best way to understand this, and many scholars have talked about it this way, is what you have in Genesis 2 is a sort of a telescoping in. So you've got the big picture in Genesis 1 of creation, and Genesis 2, you telescope in, particularly around the creation of human beings. And so you have some repetition there. It's not, it's not another creation story that's in competition with the first one. It's a telescoping in to uh, focus on one particular aspect of creation, which is the uh, creation of human beings. Now, in verse 4, this process begins. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And, and here's 
part of how you justify this, this idea that is telescoping in. God has been spoken of in, in more of a vague form in, in Genesis chapter 1. Here it's, it's sort of the personal name of God that's being used to refer to him. And so we have this sort of personalization of the process. We're getting to know more intimately what's really going on here. Verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, and just a, just a note here, some people have said, well, see, the, the order is different because you already had bushes created, but now they're not created before the people. And, and, and really, there's a simple explanation for this, and that is that the bushes of the field here refer to the agricultural plants. And you'll see in the context, as we keep reading, we're talking about a kind of a farming sort of bush uh, as, uh, in this second part, not just plants in general. Uh, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. That gives us our context. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. And the imagery there is of a potter. It's the same word that you would use if you were going to talk about somebody uh, doing pottery. And so you, you, you picture the hands involved in this and the forming and the dirty hands in the midst of what's being created. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became, at that moment, a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, which means delight, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's, it's language of perfection. And it continues, verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and Onyx stone are there. Uh, onyx. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And we don't know where all those are. But what we do know is that this place where God chose to form human beings was centrally located because all the rivers flowed from within. It was rich in resources because it had all of the, the water that it was needed for the lushness that was required. And all the minerals that were necessary were found in abundance there. It truly is a paradise. Verse 15, the Lord God then took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So the man is given purpose. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, 
But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the man is given purpose and he's given responsibility. And we'll come back to that one a little bit later in our series. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every, or had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So the man has purpose and he has responsibility and now he's being, being given dominion or stewardship over the rest of creation. Now he's not given domination Right? He's not given the freedom to dominate, but to have dominion over. Verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And that word can be translated as one who supplies strength in an area of, of lacking. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept took one of his ribs. And I always found that to be so quirky even. But when you sit and you ponder the poetry here, what is the rib? The rib is, is on the side. It's next to. It's protected. It symbols, symbolizes the oneness of this person that will be created with Adam himself. And so, God, as he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Both are accorded honor. Both are made in the image of God. Uh, and that's reaffirmed throughout. Uh, Jesus affirms the place of, of women uh, in His ministry on numerous occasions. It is the women who are the first ones to the tomb to see that it's empty and to report to be the first witnesses of Christ's resurrection. And, and then you go forward into the New Testament and you see Paul who ministered to uh, many women and with women and taught husbands to be uh, willing to lay down their lives for their wives. And so we see that in the Scripture, there's this honor accorded, and it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful oneness. And we could, this is another one of those issues we could follow down on a rabbit trail, but we're not going to right now because we're going to stay on the big picture. But because the key feature is that no longer is the man alone. He has community. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Freedom, glory, paradise, joy, communion with God and with each other. It's the picture of paradise. It's the definition of paradise, in fact. Now, I want to pull back from this and pull out just 
briefly three themes that are going to set the foundation for our, our entire study through the Bible. And they come from this text that we've just read. And they're very large-scale themes, but they're very important. And the first one, uh, they're traceable throughout the whole Bible. Uh, and and what, they, what, they, what they explain to us is the condition of people in that state of paradise in the very beginning. The first one is this, is that the people were with God. The people were with God. I want you to notice the level of intimacy God had with the people in the beginning. I'm not a potter, so it's hard for me to imagine. I've seen pictures of it, and my kids have done it. And, and so, but what I, I love the beach, and so when I think of this, I think of all the hours I've spent on the beach uh, making sandcastles, you know, in the ground, kneeling on the ground, covered in the sand, digging into the sand, hands covered, carefully, intimately fashioning whatever it is that you're making out of the sand. This is the image of God in the creation of human beings, intimately involved in their existence. And as if that weren't enough, what does he do next? He, he breathes, and it's not just that he breathes onto the humans, he breathes into the nostrils. Now how close do you have to be to breathe into the nostrils? And life comes, and this glorious creature exists, and God places a stamp on this creature made in my image. There's an intimacy there and a closeness. And, and, and the way they communicate, communicate seems to have this incredible clarity as God communicates with the people. In fact, in the next chapter, it says that God was walking in the cool of the evening in the garden. So what we have in the very beginning, paradise is marked by the intimacy between human beings and their maker. That's just the way it is. That's how it's supposed to be, that we would be close to God in that way. Now I'm going to take these three in the order that they come in this text, but we're going to change the order around as we go through the series. The next one that we discover in the text is they're with God and they're in the garden. They're in the garden. They're in the perfect place. The garden, by its de very definition, is a closed-off space. Probably envisioning some sort of hedge or something around the term would envision that kind of a garden. Closed off. Sealed off. One of my professors used to always refer to the Garden of Eden as the nest for people. You get the imagery of that. that this is where, where people were to flourish and to be protected. It's their dwelling place. They're close to God, and they're sealed off. And it's called Eden, which means delight. And, and some scholars see in the, the phrase uh, that it's in the east. The reason that that's brought out is because there's a sense in which, which God's dwelling is in the east. The sun rises in the east, and the imagery and the metaphor, they're connected with God. And so there's a sense in which uh, being Eden, the place of delight in the east, is the place of God's dwelling. And he said of this place, it's very good. And in verse 9 of what we read, out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight 
and good for food. He's filled it with what they need. And it's well nourished, this garden, by all these incredible rivers. And it's full of resources for their every need. And so the people in paradise are with God and they're in a special place. And then lastly, they're together. There's community. They're not alone. It was not good that the man was alone. And so God brought community into the mix. And these three themes, with God in the garden and together in community, form a kind of a grid through which we can explore the rest of the entire story of God and how we fit into it. Bible story is about how these conditions, the presence of God, the perfect place, and community were initiated in the beginning in creation in the book of Genesis, then how they were lost, and then over time, they were, these conditions were recuperated by God's powerful work in the world. They're recovered. So the chart that you have, let's put up the, the next one. We'll just do this briefly. It says, first of all, you have creation. You're with God together in the garden. That's the picture of paradise. Those are the key elements of paradise. And through the series, what we're going to do is we're going to discover how that was lost. So go, if you would, please go to the next slide. In the fall, they're without God. Now, not completely. God never removes himself yet completely from them. Their discord is int introduced into their communion, and they're displaced. They're, they're, they're asked to leave the garden. And that's the fallen state. And there's a, there's a break there. We wonder what's going to happen next. And God would be fully justified to leave things at that. He gave us perfection, and we walked away. We turned our backs on it. But he doesn't. And the redemption process starts. God comes with the promise, a man out of whom will come a people favored by God and in a place. And then you can't see it very well because it's in dark text, but it says above the word Exodus, the Old Testament deliverance. And in that, there's an exodus, and then the exodus creates a community, but the community is unable to uh, remain in, in lockstep with God, and so the end result of that is exile. The people are scattered. And we move to the New Testament, and we have now the New Testament deliverance, and the New Testament exodus is the cross of Jesus Christ. And where the initial exodus was not able to bring about transformation, the next one is able to do so. And so you have, rather than exile, in number seven, the gathering of the people. Rather than being scattered, they're gathered into the community, the church. And then that ultimately results in the fulfillment. And what do you have in the new heaven and the new earth? You've got our conditions as they're supposed to be again. God among peoples in the new heaven and the new earth. God's presence, the community, and the place. So don't get overwhelmed by that because we're going to take it in steps. But this is the process of God's redemptive story. And once you understand this, then when you open up to any random section and you read a story, you can begin to place it within the overarching framework of what God is doing in the world and his story. And that's what we want to get to. Um, this week I was reading, and I don't know how I came across this, probably on one of my news feeds or something, a story about the Hetch Hetchy Dam, which is actually right next to the Cherry Lake, It's part of the same system that I mentioned earlier. The Hetch Hetchy uh, Reservoir is supposedly like Yosemite Valley, but it's been dammed up, 
and so there's water there, so we can't enjoy that. Now, I'm not trying to be political. There's a, there is a proposition that has to do with Hetch Hetchy, and I think everybody would agree that ultimately we would like for that to be the way it was naturally made. I don't know. I haven't researched it enough to know whether or not it's feasible or, you know, people in San Francisco will be dying of thirst for the rest of their lives. I don't know any of that stuff. I'm sure those of you who do know will send me emails about it, so I'll become educated uh, over this next week. But here's the point I want to bring up. This, that in that article, it was this beautiful image at the bottom. They showed the process of restoration if at some point Hetchetchi were to be restored to its original condition and the valley revealed again. In the very beginning, it would be a mess. And all kinds of things growing that shouldn't be growing and you have to go in and pull some stuff out. And in the first years, you'd see these water lines on the rocks and it just wouldn't be as much. And then 25 years, they showed a picture of how it's changed, transformed. And then 50 years, it's transformed. And then at 100 years, it looks exactly the way God made it. The way it originally was when it was first dammed up. And, and the beauty of it. It's kind of a microcosm, I thought. That little image, the stages, 25 years, 50 years, 100 years. That's a little microcosm of what God is doing in the world throughout. He's redeeming his broken creation. That's the story of God. And it's this process that goes from one stage to the next. And that's what we're exploring together. Is what is that process like? And what is the end result of it? The fact that, God, that this is God's story has a couple of implications. Uh, just to finish up here this morning. One. There are a kind of a a constellation of key doctrines that come out of what we read this morning. And I'm just going to rattle off a few. We get indication in these first two chapters that there's, there's one God and that this God has a proper name, Yahweh. And so as we approach this subject, we need to be aware of that fact. That God is personal, that he's one, and that he defines himself. We don't get to define God. He defines himself. And it's very important that we approach this entire process with that kind of humility. You know, God made us in a, his image, and we've been trying to return the favor ever since by making him in our image, right? And it doesn't work that way. It's not a back and forth. He made us in his image. He self-defines we accommodate to who he is. It's very important that we keep that in mind as we walk this journey together. There's a distinction in the chapters between God and creation. God is not creation. We don't look around and, and, and look at the trees and say, there's God. We say, there's the evidence of God's creative work and his power. Now, this is something where... In a Christian worldview, we become distinguished from much of the philosophical thought around us because there's a sense in which God is vague and he's everything. And what we have in the very beginning here is God is specific and he's, he's, he, he, his creation is made, but it's not him. He stands above creation. And that has implications for how we approach things that we'll, we'll see teased out along the way. It also tells us that we're made in the image of God, which is extremely important. Because that's 
places a particular value on the human being. Men and women are made in the image of God and therefore given value that is significant and unique. And so the decisions that we make with respect to human beings flow out of that reality. Human beings have been given a purpose and a responsibility and authority and dominion over creation. Not domination, but dominion. Benevolent, loving care for what God has made. And then this idea that both men and women are made in God's image and have been given to one another community to be a blessing to one another. Now, any of those could be teased out into a whole series, but they're key constellations of key doctrines that we need to notice as we walk through this. And among those is the last one, and this is the one I want to just spend just a couple moments on, that we are created for relationship with God. We're created for relationship with God. This is the very point of our existence, to be in relationship with God. Now, I know that in the messiness of life, in the messiness of the history of the world, in the messiness of our own personal circumstances, we can get pretty far from that main goal, from that purpose. And that's what I want to call us back to this morning out of this text as a final kind of application. To recognize that you and I were made to be in relationship with the living God. And if that's the case, then our lives, we would do well to have our lives reflect that reality. And so as we sit here this morning and we ponder, what am I doing with my life? How am I conducting my life? Would it, could it be said of you? Is it true that the, the driving purpose of your existence is to be in community with your maker? Is that the number one goal in your life? And you might say, well, that's good for the people who are just sort of being initiated into the faith. And I know we always have people who are in that kind of seeking mode with us, and that's great. We're so glad that you're here. But it's not just true for those of us who are seeking and questioning and asking. It's true for every single one of us. Paul, who was arguably the most mature Christian who ever lived, had this as his fundamental goal, to know Christ, to be found in Him. It's the very key of His, of his existence. And so, and so it should be of ours too. And so this morning, as we finish up, is knowing God your number one? It's what you were made for. It's what you were made for. And I know you don't have all the answers to how that happens, and we're going to get to all that. Jesus Christ is a huge part of that, the key part. We're going to get to all that. But just right now, let's answer that question. Is knowing God my number one goal in life? God works in mysterious ways. Um, Jeff Diaz Lucky, some of you know Jeff Diaz Lucky. If you were part of this church since the very beginning, you know Jeff Diaz Lucky. Um, if you've been around here, you, you may have heard the story of his life. He's been battling cancer for the last three years, and we prayed for him last Sunday. Um, and Jeff Diaz Lucky passed away last night uh, at, at about 10 p.m. And I was reminded by Susana this morning, this church started in his living room. And 
I was reminded that it was October 7th when we had our first gathering in his living, living room. I'm trying to process all that. Um, we went over there on Thursday and spent time with Jeff and his wife Kathy, and they have three young children, friends to our children. And we spent time in that room where Jeff was laying, and he couldn't speak. Um, he can make motions with his face a little bit. He can move his hand a little bit. Um, and what was absolutely stunning to me, watching this family, was to see how they have been walking through this tragedy and suffering by making sure at every turn they have framed up their understanding of the world and what's happening in light of the story of God. And when we do that, something remarkable can happen. And it happened on Thursday night when we were there. We cherished the moments that we'd had together. We celebrated the ways in which God had worked through Jeff's life, including this church being here. We prayed we talked and processed. We tried to imagine where he is right now and what it would be like. And at the end of that, we had what seemed like no alternative but to break out in praise with the family around the bed of this dying man and our family. And the doxology started first, and then amazing grace. And we sang together with tears of joy and sadness. And by the way, I don't think Christianity just makes it so that you, you, you sort of pretend that the pain isn't there. I actually think that you can embrace and, 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 and have the capacity to, to, to face the pain in a deeper way than you could without the knowledge of God and, and His work in the world and how your story fits in. When you get this framework, it doesn't inoculate you against pain, but it gives you the framework within which to operate and to live, to understand what is going on in the world, and to even make peace with the incredible mysteries of the world, like this mystery of this youngish man passing away and leaving these children and having this wife and all that that entails. And what's absolutely stunning to me is to watch that every time this family hit a wall, what did they do? They drive deeper into this story because they know and they have found over time that this is where the answers are in the story of God, the amazing redemptive plan of God. And so the message for us this morning is make that priority number one. To know this God. To love, cherish Seek after and frame up your whole life within the story of this amazing God. That's why we're here. Everything flows from that. So let's commit to embark on this journey together. Some things are going to happen in our lives that are going to be beautiful and challenging. And at the end of the day, I just love the title of this book. It captures everything. The God who is there, yes, 
taste the God who is there. Finding your place in God's story. That's what our call is. Because he's there. Lord, we can commit ourselves to you as we embark on a new journey to study your words. Ultimately, we'll discover it's not even about this book. It's about the person, person this book testifies to, Jesus Christ. Commit ourselves to this process. We ask you, help us, give us the courage to study along the way. You may be calling some of us to do some additional study, reading. Help us to ask questions. And most of all, we make a commitment to you to make knowing you the number one priority in our lives. And we know that you'll be faithful in that. You always are. So we give you the glory in Christ's name. Amen.